The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I'm curious how many of you drove a few weeks ago to see the solar eclipse? Show of hands. Like you drove to get into the path of totality. Yes, me. My family, we were right there with all of you crazy people. My parents live in Columbia, South Carolina, which is right at the end of the totality path. So my family, along with the Corys, which if you don't know, we have four children, and so do they. So we loaded up four adults, eight children, in two vans to drive 12 hours, spend one night, all to see something that would last two minutes. And it was totally worth it. But like if you, and you know that if you saw it, but, but if you did this, you're, you're familiar uh, with these super stylish things that are called eclipse glasses. And basically, you had to wear in order to keep the sun from melting your eyeballs out of your face and it resulting in like the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing going on. And that's a reference for all of you that grew up with me. College students won't get that one. All right. So in order to look at the sun, you had to look through these special lenses. And what you saw was really cool, but you weren't in actuality seeing the eclipse, what it actually looked like. You couldn't do that. You look at it unfiltered, it would blind you. You had to see an image of the eclipse filtered through a lens. Only during the two minutes of totality could you remove your stylish eclipse glasses and behold the glory of what was actually happening and i i don't have words that can capture beauty like that the gospel of john aims to show us the glory the beauty of christ And as we journeyed throughout this gospel over and over again, we've seen people miss it. Like they're looking at Jesus, but they're not actually seeing the glory of Jesus. Why? I believe it is because they are looking at him through their own special lens. They're getting a filtered image of Christ. Not the actual thing. They're they're looking at him through lenses of what they think the Savior should look like. They're looking at him through the lens of what they think it it means for Jesus to be the the coming king. They, They look at him through their lens, and as a result, they don't actually see him as he is. They're blind to that. Like, if they could just... If they could just remove the lenses of their own perceptions, of their own prejudices, then they would be able to behold the actual glory of Christ. We don't have words to capture beauty like that. This is what I think we see unfolding, what I think we see happening rather explicitly in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19 that we just heard read. There's these crowds coming to see Jesus, and I think they're seeing him through a lens of what they think a savior, what they think a king coming to them should should look like. And I think, as a result, I think these crowds help us to see how this happens in our own lives. Because, I mean, the reality is, is that all too often when we look at Christ, we look at him through our own lenses, our own perceptions, our own prejudices. 
We do this all the time. We don't just do this with Christ. We do this kind of thing in all of our relationships. So when I first got married, I constantly, you know, I don't do this anymore, surely. I constantly, that's major sarcasm, constantly looked at Holly through my lens of what it meant to be a wife. My lens did not line up with the reality. I quickly figured out my lens was wrong. Holly constantly looked at me through the lens of what she believed it meant to be a husband. And I constantly found out that that lens was correct, and I was wrong about what it meant to be a husband. (laughs) Our kids look at us through a lens of what they believe parents should be like. They should buy and provide everything they want. No rules whatsoever. And we look through them at a lens of what we believe being a child looks like, being quiet and obedient always. This happens in our professions, our occupations. I have a lens that I look through for what it means for someone to be a clerk at a store, how they should help me, how they should treat me. I have a lens that I look through for what it means for someone to be a police officer, which means they hold everyone accountable to the law except for me. They don't give me tickets like they did last week right over here in the neighborhood. The speed limit apparently is 25 through the whole neighborhood, people, not just school zone. Okay, I'm going to get off of that. I've got to move on. <laughs> people, uh, people do this with me, uh, with what it means. To, everyone has their own idea of what it means to be a pastor. And, and most people are pretty cool with letting you know what they think it means for you to be a pastor. Not y'all, of course. Y'all are amazing and awesome and perfect. But we do this with all relationships in our lives, and so we also do it all too often with Christ. So what I want us to do is let's look at this text together and let's see the lenses that lead these people astray. The lenses that lead us astray. And and let's see if the Holy Spirit won't use the truth of this word that he inspired. Let's see if he won't use that truth to pry our lenses off of our face and replace them with ones that bring clarity to who Christ actually is. I think that's what he does through the word. He renews our mind. He renews and transforms the way that we see things, including the way that we see Christ. So that's our goal. Let's begin together. John chapter 12. We're going to start in verses 12 and 13. It says, the next day, if you were with us last week, you saw Jesus in the city of Bethany. He had his feet anointed by Mary with some precious perfume. This is the day after that. So the next day, he's leaving Bethany. He's headed to Jerusalem two miles away. And the large crowd that had come to the feast in Jerusalem heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Literally means save now. It's like a prayer. Please save, save us, bring salvation. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So we are at a turning point in the gospel of John. I've been warning you that it's coming. The past couple of weeks have been a transition for us, but today we actually make the turn. And it's a turn towards the cross. You can, you can feel the turn even in the pace of this gospel. So, so far we've been through chapters 1 through 11, and 1 through 11 have covered a nearly 2 to 3 year period. 11 chapters, 2 to 3 years. 
of Jesus traveling, teaching, working miracles. The rest of this gospel, nearly half of it, focuses on a single week. You feel the turn, the shift, the slowing down of the the pace, and that week that John's going to focus on begins right here in chapter 12 and verse 12, the next day, the first day of the week, Sunday, we begin this week known as Holy Week. We often refer to what we see right here in these events as Palm Sunday because of the waving of the, the palms. This is where our week begins with Jesus headed into Jerusalem, and he's headed there, we know, to die. He highlighted that for us even just last week as Mary anointed his feet. He referred to that as being an anointing for his burial. His death is coming. That's why he's going. We've been told already multiple times over that the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, everybody there in Jerusalem that's in charge wants to kill him. He makes the turn. He heads to Jerusalem to head towards the cross. And so John, our author, slows down so that we might behold the glory of Christ. That's what? That's what this whole gospel is about. Like we've called and will continue to call this entire series, Behold His Glory. That's John's goal. And John believes that we are about to see Jesus' glory shine the brightest through the inglorious darkness of the cross. Like the moment that gets darkest is when the glory of Christ shines brightest. He's been referring to it all throughout this gospel as an hour that's coming, an hour that's coming. Next week, we're going to hear the hour's here. Jesus, in John 17, when we get there, right before he prays, when, I mean, right before he goes to the cross, he prays, and what he prays is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. This is the pinnacle, the point to which John has been heading Christ lifted up on the cross for us to behold his glory. It doesn't look like glory, does it? It's the most shameful death that was in existence in the ancient world, in the first century Roman world. It looks dark and inglorious. John wants us to see the brightest glory of Christ shine through it. He doesn't want us to miss it. The crowds in chapter 12, right here as this week begins, they're missing it. We're going to see how. But they're missing it, and the question becomes, will we? Or even to press it more home, like in this moment, do we? Do we miss, right now, in our lives, on a daily basis, do we miss seeing the glory of Jesus because we look at him through our, our own lenses, our own ideas of what it means for him to be glorious? It, this is what the people in John 12 are doing. They believe that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to be their Savior. They believe that he's coming to be their King. And they have their own idea of what all that means you can see it in what they do and in what they say want us to see what they think this means first see it in what they do before jesus even makes it to jerusalem word is getting out that he's headed there that happens in verse 12 and so as he heads that way by the time we get to verse 13 the people are going out they're not even waiting for him to get to the city they're going out to meet him this is what a city would do 
in the Roman Empire, this is what a city would do when a victorious leader was returning from battle. They would go out to meet them, to celebrate that military leader, that king, to celebrate their, their victory. It, it, it's pretty explicit that this is what the people are doing. And I think it's pretty explicit because they don't just go out to meet him, they take something with them. What do they take? Not a trick question, I promise. Palm branches. And date palms grow all around Jerusalem. They take palm branches and they wave these. Palm branches over time had become a symbol of nationalistic pride for Israel. It, it become ways they celebrate victory, just like people wave flags. Not everybody in first century Israel owned a flag, but they could get their hands on a palm branch. And it became a, a I, mean, I mean, this is like, if you can imagine, like victorious American troops returning to the States and being received with a parade and everybody's standing on the side waving American flags. Like, that's, that's the scene. We're seeing what these people think it means for Jesus to be their Savior and their King through what they do. Come out to meet Him. Wave palm branches. But not just through what they do, we also see it through what they say. Or better yet, what they shout. They're not quiet about this. Look at the end of verse 13 again. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I told you already, Hosanna literally means save now. They're crying out to Jesus as Savior. Save us. Bring salvation. They're, they're, they believe He's here to save them. Their cry right here is actually not their own words. It's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. I bet many of you actually have it cited somewhere in your Bible as a footnote or something like that. They are quoting Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. It's, it's where this cry comes from. Save us. It's, it, it, in its original context, if you go back to Psalm 118, it's actually a prayer of blessing to be prayed over someone who's coming up to the temple. So someone who is approaching Jerusalem, it's a prayer to be prayed over someone who's coming to the temple in order to worship. And in Hebrew, the wording actually goes like this. Blessed in the name of the Lord is the one who comes. It's a generic prayer of blessing over someone who's coming to worship, but this crowd, they take that and they tweak it ever so slightly. Because this is not just some general worshiper coming to the temple. No, they believe this is the Savior. Hosanna, save us, save us now. That's our prayer to you. This is the Savior and the one they see who is coming. He comes in the name of the Lord Himself. Now, blessed in the name of the Lord is the one who comes. Blessed is He who is coming in the name of the Lord, our Savior, the one who's bringing salvation. And just to make sure we understand what that means, they say something that doesn't come out of Psalm 118. They clarify it for us. They say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even, they add this, even the King of Israel. Like, don't miss what we're saying. Through what they say and through what they do, these people make unmistakably clear. Like if we take everything we just saw and we add it all together, these people make unmistakably clear the, what, what their idea is, what, what it means to them for Jesus to be 
Savior and King. And it is a purely political idea. What, what I mean by that is this. First century Israel was not completely independent. They were underneath Roman rulership. The Roman Empire spread all over the world at that point, the known world. They were a subservient kingdom. And what they see in Christ, what's indicated by what they're doing and what they're saying, is that He has come to bring victory over their present oppressors, over the Romans. He's come to save, to bring salvation from tyranny so that He can be our King. They believe He's come to triumph. That's the reason there are symbols and words of triumph all over what they're doing and saying. It's why they're waving palm branches. It's why they're coming out to meet him. This is our victorious one who's coming to save us now, to bring victory now, to be our king now. This is why this event gets called the triumphant entry. I'm willing to bet that in most of your Bibles, that's the subheading above this text. It's the triumphant entry entry this was their lens for what it meant for someone to be their savior they would save them from rome this it would give them back their their true freedom they would they would save them in this sense but this is not why jesus came It's not the Savior that He is. He did come to be their Savior. He did come to be victorious. He did come to triumph over their enemies. This is indeed a triumphant entry. But His triumph, His victory, His salvation will look nothing like what they expect. They're blind to the Savior that Jesus truly is because they see Him through their own lens. Do we? Do, do we? do Like when you hear, when they heard the words Jesus is Savior, they were like, yeah, totally agree with that. Wave my palm branch. When we hear the words Jesus is Savior, we're like, yeah, totally agree with that. Sing my songs, wave my hands. Like we do the same thing they do. But they had a completely wrong picture. Do we? When you hear that, that term, Jesus is your Savior, what, what comes to mind? When you hear Jesus brings triumph, Jesus brings victory, what What lens do you see all of that language through? Like, What do we think it means for Jesus to save us? Does that mean that He'll save me from my financial woes? Does it mean that He'll save me from my health issues? There are lots of people who believe that's what it means. It's what it means in eternity. In the eternal sense, there is a promised day coming when He saves us and makes us completely new, completes our salvation. We have no more health issues. We bask in the riches of the glory of God forever. Is that what it means? Like right here, right now? I always wonder, like people who, who 
That's their theology. That's their belief that for Jesus to be Savior means he always saves me from my current health issues. I always wonder what happens to their faith on their deathbed. I want you to have a faith that stares death in the face and doesn't see it as an enemy who's about to conquer you so Jesus needs to conquer it and keep you alive. I want you to stare death in the face as an already defeated enemy so that you can say, bring it, your game. That's the kind of faith I want to have. Does Jesus being Savior mean he's going to save me from these kinds of things? Does it mean that he'll save me and everyone I know from every disaster that could befall us? We've seen a lot of disaster befall a lot of people over the last couple of weeks. The devastation wreaked in, in Houston. Most of you, you all know that I was born in Texas. I got tons of family in and around the Dallas area, there, uh, some down around Houston, and, and they're safe, they're good, but not everyone they know is. Because this is our concept of what it means. For Jesus to be Savior. Nothing bad will ever enter into my life. And if that's the concept, then, then what happens when Jesus doesn't turn out to be the Savior we expect him to be? I think what happens is similar to what happens with these people. Because Jesus is not going to turn out to be the Savior they expect him to be. They are going to grow angry. Is this not what happens with us? When Jesus doesn't save the way we expect him to, we get angry. We get bitter like he's broken a promise and yet the only promise that we have is that in this world we will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He's with us. These people, when he's not the Savior they want him to be, they grow angry. And by the end of the week, the people who waved palm branches will be calling for the waving of whips. The people who shouted Hosanna will cry out, crucify him. They are blind. They're blind to the Savior who Jesus truly is because they see him through their own lens. And not only that, they're not just blind to the Savior that Jesus truly is. They're blind to the King that Jesus truly is. Because they see, they see that through their own lens as well. They thought that not only would Jesus just save them from the Romans, but he would become their king. He'd replace the Rome. He would rule over Israel as an independent nation. He'd put them back on the map, make them great and glorious all over again, restore their former glory. The glory like they'd had under their greatest kings of David and Solomon. They would be a people to be feared again, a people to be, to be reckoned with, supreme over all other peoples because God was at their head. This, this was their lens for what it meant for somebody to be their king. But this is not why Jesus came. I mean, he did come to be their king, to rule and to reign, but it will look nothing like what they expect. They're blind to the king that Jesus truly is because they see him through their own lens. Again, we have to ask the same question. Do we? When you hear Jesus is king, we'd agree with that, just like these people agree with that. When you hear Jesus is king, that he rules and he reigns. What lens do you see all of that language through? Do you hear that language through? What do we think it means for Christ to be our king and to, to rule? Does it mean that 
we get to do whatever we want to do as long as we can claim Christ told us to? I think that's the most common way that we treat Jesus as king. Jesus as king becomes a cover for me to actually be my own king. I'll make all my own decisions. I'll do whatever I want to do. All I got to do is Christianize it. Jesus told me to. King Jesus, you know, he's ruling over my life, and this is where he's telling me. As a youth pastor, I saw this happen all the time in high school relationships, let me tell you. I really don't think it's working out. Uh, because Jesus just doesn't want me dating anyone right now. <laughs> and I need to be single. For girls, it's, I'm just going to date Jesus for a little while. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I only did that once as a teenager. Once. This is my public confession. I repent in dust and ashes. I loathe myself. <laughs> and and the thing is, is that we can laugh when we talk about, nobody can argue with my decisions because King Jesus told me to. We can laugh at that when it comes to like high school breakups, but what about when it comes to marriages? In, in 16 years of ministry, I've had so many people sit down, not here, this has not happened to me here, I mean that, that's true. I've had so many people sit down with me and tell me that Jesus told them to leave their spouse for another man, for another woman. It's, it's, it's a cover to do what we want to do, to be our own king. I'll give you another example. What, what, what about when it comes to being corrected or called to repent by a fellow brother and sister in, in Christ. When another believer lovingly tries to show us that we're living in sin and it's wreaking havoc in our own lives and in the lives of others, I've seen so many people in that situation respond to correction by saying, you know, I've prayed about this, I've prayed about what I'm doing, I've prayed about the situation that I am, and God and I are good. Like, who are you to judge me? Matthew 7, 1, brother, back up. That's not what Matthew 7, 1 means. It says, judge not lest you be judged. We can talk about it later. And, and they accuse others of being judgmental, and they end up leaving the church and shutting out anyone who could possibly call them to repent because they have King Jesus on their side. I've done this. A decade ago, I was ready to be done in ministry. I was looking for a door out. And I have no marketable skills, people. Like, I, I have an associate's in communication, which means nothing. I have a BS in religion, a bachelor's of science, which a BS in religion is the best degree for a pastor to have. I have, some of y'all get that joke later. All right? And then I've got a master's in divinity. Like, I'm literally qualified to do nothing but this. And I was done. I was done, and I was looking for a way out. True story. Ask my wife. I told my parents, her parents, everyone who would listen, that Jesus had called me to be a tattoo artist in Nashville, Tennessee. That is a true story. <laughs> I had a friend who worked at a tattoo shop on Broadway. It's not there anymore. It was called Billy Joe Tattoos. And I was going to go, and I was going to be an apprentice there. I told him I was coming 
and I had people in my life who would sit down, and it wasn't the tattoo artist thing. If you're a tattoo artist, that's great. That's fine. Wonderful. Whatever. I'm not talking about that like that's a problem. The problem, the sin for me was I was running from God. I was running from where he had called me to be and what he had called me to be doing. And I had people who came and sat down in my life and and, and called me on the carpet about that and called me to repent. And I would try to push them back with this whole Jesus told me. And he gets to rule and reign in my life. And they would use scripture to correct me and to correct the way I was going about things and to correct certain things I was saying. And I would push back praise God. God, he broke through and brought me to repentance, or I wouldn't know any of you. I'd also have a lot more tattoos. (laughs) They're expensive, though. But we do this. We have our own idea of what it means for Jesus to be king, and usually it's just a cover for our own kingship of our own lives. The crowds, like the crowds in John chapter 12, we're blind for what it truly means for Jesus to be king because we're seeing him through our own lens and we miss beholding his glory. We settle for a lesser glory. Jesus wants us to see what it actually means for him to be savior and king because it's greater. It's greater than anything that we could make those words mean. He wants these crowds in John 12 to behold his glory for them to actually see what it means that he is the Savior King. And so what Jesus does in verse 14 is he makes a move. He makes a move to pry off these false lenses that these people see him through so that they might actually see him for who he truly is. So they might actually see his beauty and his glory that our words just can't capture see the move he makes with me verses 14 to 16 and jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written fear not daughter of zion behold your king coming you hear that behold your king coming sitting on a donkey's colt his disciples did not understand these things at first but when jesus was glorified in other words after he'd been crucified buried, resurrected. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What is going on right here? Like this verse kind of breaks in on the scene in a weird way. You got this crowd, There's a lot of excitement buzzing through the air. They're ready to break into a frenzy. They're going crazy over Jesus and his entrance into Jerusalem. They're cheering. They're waving palm branches. The city is about to erupt over the glory of Jesus. And so what does Jesus do to make his grand entrance? He mounts a donkey. A donkey. A donkey. I don't know if everybody's like picking up on, and not just a donkey, a donkey's colt, like a young donkey, like petting zoo, little kitty ride on donkey. This is like, this is like if you were waiting to see like Queen Elizabeth pass by at the tail end of like a royal parade, and, and there's this massive royal fanfare, the tension is building, and here comes Queen Elizabeth pedaling by on a door of the Explorer bike with training wheels. The disciples don't get it. 
Why is he doing that? This is the opposite of how we think about glory. And that's what makes it beautiful. This is how our God works. We see that through the life of Christ from the moment he's born. He's born in a stinking manger. I mean that literally, stinking manger. And from the manger to the cross, at every point in between, this is how Jesus reveals his glory. Why does he do it this way? Like the disciples don't get it, they don't understand, and if they don't understand, then I'm sure the overwhelming majority of the crowd doesn't either. So the question becomes, why? Why is Jesus doing this? John, our author, explains why by quoting the prophet Zechariah. Look at verse 15 again. Jesus climbs on the donkey. Why? Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John doesn't want to look at Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want to look at Christ through the lens of these, that these people are using. He doesn't want us to look at Jesus through our lens of what we think it means for him to be Savior and King. He wants to, to pry off our lenses and put new ones on. How? With what? With the Word. John goes to the Word, the truth. Revealed to pry off our false notions of who Christ is and to help us see him clearly for who he is. John is showing us that if we want to see clearly who Jesus is, there is one set of lenses that will bring him into focus. This word. That's it. We go outside this, we can all make up our own version of Jesus. Form him to fit our image. But the goal of this is the other way around. For us to be conformed to his image. And that's what this word does. So John goes back to the word. He goes back to Zechariah chapter 9. And, and he says you have to understand that, that, that this is a clear picture of Jesus found here in the prophets. When, whenever you're reading in your New Testament and you find a New Testament author doing this, going back to the Old Testament... That most of the time, they don't just mean for you to focus on the portion of Scripture they quoted. Most of the time, they quote a portion of Scripture to bring to mind the whole. In, in other words, John is saying, you want to understand what's happening with Jesus right here. You've got to go back to Zechariah chapter 9. You've got to use that as your lens through which you may rightly see Christ and why he is riding on a donkey. So I'm going to take us back very quickly to Zechariah chapter 9 and read you just a little bit more of the context. This is what the prophet says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is He, Savior, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why, why is Jesus on the kitty ride donkey's back to show us what kind of king He is and what kind of salvation He 
brings. He is a humble king. He's not riding into town in some way that boasts of wealth or power. No, quite the opposite. He's not on a war horse. That's how kings often rode into town, showing their power, showing the victory that they were bringing. They rode on a powerful war horse. Kings would ride occasionally on donkeys, but only in times of peace. These people are expecting Jesus to come being a warlord savior, and he comes riding on a a donkey as a king of peace. This is exactly what the prophet Zechariah continues. This is what he goes on to say. Read you just a little bit more. Humble and mounted on a donkey, and I, this is God speaking, I will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. John wants us to bring all that to bear on what's unfolding with Christ. Christ is coming, bringing a salvation of peace that's going to extend to the ends of the earth. How will he do it? Zechariah seems to indicate that somehow he's going to do it through a covenant of blood. Somehow, through a blood-sealed promise, Jesus will set free people who are now prisoners. And they shall have peace with him as their king. Somehow, Jesus will be this kind of Savior King. How? I think John tells us how. Look at verse 16 again. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, after He died, was buried, raised from the dead, and they have the full light of of the gospel, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When Jesus was was glorified, death, burial, resurrection, after that, they got it. They could look back and understand. They could look back through the lens of the gospel. This This is what John is showing. John is showing us that if we want to be able to clearly see who Jesus is, there is one set of lenses that will bring him into focus. The Gospel. Old Testament, New Testament, together. The Gospel. He's pointed us back to the Old Testament Word. And he's pointing us forward to its fulfillment in the Gospel. This These are the lenses, like a pair of glasses, Old and New Testament together, that give us clarity to see our Savior King. Without the Old Testament, we got no clue what this donkey business means. Y'all can all quote that. That's tweetable. Without the Old Testament, we got no clue what this donkey business means. My pastor. Like, without the Old Testament, we don't, we don't see, but without the gospel, without the, the, the completion of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We can't put all the pieces together. John is showing us all of this comes together to give us a clear picture of what it means that Jesus is our Savior King. When seen through the Gospel, Old and New Testament, what does it mean that Jesus is Savior? When seen through the Gospel, it means that He has come 
humbling himself so that we might have peace with God. We who are all prisoners to sin and death, we, we were natural enemies of God. Jesus saves us, he's Savior, and he sets us free so that we have peace with God. How does he do that? By the blood of the covenant. Christ shed his blood on the cross, the place to where he's headed in our text. He shed his blood on the cross to pay the price for our sins, not his own sins. He didn't have any of those. For our sins, he did it for his people. He purchased us with his blood. Romans 5.5 says this really explicitly, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 and verse 20 specifies that he made that peace by the blood of his cross. He saved. This is what it means that Jesus is our Savior. That we are His now and forever. Even if I got all these money problems that I'm not being saved from or health issues that I'm not being saved from, can He work a miracle in those situations and bring salvation? Sure, but even that is just a foretaste of the full salvation that's to come. Right here in the midst of all of this, I have confidence to cling and to hold on to Christ because He has saved me now and forever, even through death. I have confidence to hold on to Him who is my Savior. This is what it means through the lens of the Gospel that He is our Savior. And not just our Savior, He's our King. What does that mean? When seen through the lens of the gospel, Old and New Testament, what does it mean that Jesus is king? It means that he came not just to save us out of our current situation, but to put us into a new one. King, that's, that's how he relates. To, he's got a relationship with us. Zechariah characterized us as prisoners. We've been set free by our king we were once prisoners to sin and to death slaves to sin and to death but we've been set free by him and his rule and his kingdom extends to the ends of the earth for all who trust in him we're no longer slaves we're citizens we got a new relationship with with him we've been reconciled to god brought back to God. Again, if we go back to Romans 5, this is what it says. Not just that we have peace with God because of the blood of Jesus, but verse 10 says that we have been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord, our King Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We've been reconciled, given a new relationship with God through Christ our King, one in which God is now our joy. We rejoice in Him. He's our, our this is what it means for Jesus to be our King. We've been put in a new relationship with Him, one in which He is our joy. I'm not a slave to sin. No, I, I now get Him. Like, for Jesus to be my Savior King doesn't mean He saves me from whatever I want and sanctions me to do whatever I want. No, it means He has saved me forever from wanting anything less than the best. He saved me forever from wanting anything less than and the best, and the best is Him. He's my King. He 
peace, my joy. And so I will follow wherever he leads. I'll follow wherever he calls because I know he is always calling me closer to himself. Is this the lens through which we see our Savior, our King, Jesus? It's not the lens of the crowd in John 12. Look at our final verses, 17 to 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Some of them may get what's going on, but I think verse 18 hits home a little bit harder what's going on. The reason why the crowd from Jerusalem, that is, went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Have they? Has the world really gone after Jesus? Has, has this crowd? Or is the reason that they're there, are they just there because they've heard about a sign that he did? He raised a man from the dead. If he can do that for somebody, I'll come and see what I can get from him. Maybe salvation from Rome. Maybe we'll get a king to make us great and glorious. And, and when they don't get it, we will watch their love turn to hate. These, these crowds, they will not follow Jesus to and through the cross. They will put him on it. Because they didn't actually want him. They wanted their version of him, their perception of him, him as Savior King through their lens. This is the fate, what we're seeing right here. It's the fate of all who see Jesus through their own lens. When he doesn't turn out to be the Savior or King that we want, our love will turn to hate. But, right here at the end, hear the good news of the gospel, Shades. But if we see him through the lens of this gospel, if we see the glory of what it means for him to be our Savior and our King, that he, he saves us from wanting anything less than the best, and the best is himself. If we see that and the beauty of that that cannot be put into words, then we will follow him wherever he calls, even if he calls us to a cross, because he will be calling us to himself, and that's what we want. Make no mistake, Shades, in the Gospel of John, we've made a turn towards the cross. Like John is asking us right here, right now, do we behold the glory of that? That's where we're headed. That's where Jesus is going. Will we come to? And will we see the glory and the beauty and the greatness and the love of God in that, in the cross? Christ's brightest glory shining through the inglorious darkness of the cross. Do we behold that as the glory of our Savior King? Will we lift up our hands like palms and lift up our voices in, in song to celebrate this true victory. Jesus has come to triumph. Do you see it? Do you see what it truly means for Him to be our Savior and our King?